What's up, everyone from all around the world, including Canada, USA, areas of Long Island, plus the five boroughs of Brooklyn, Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island, Queens. I'm here to help and guide you about Anchor. Anchor is a free hosting site and phone app, which is owned by Spotify. It's the easiest, awesome way to make a podcast. Why are you wasting your money paying for a hosting site to promote your podcast with limited storages? Forget about it. Let me break it down to you. There's creation tools that allow you to record, edit, monetize, distribute your podcast. Of course, add music intros, outros, uploading episodes with unlimited storages of your podcast right from your phones, computers, laptops, and tablets. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Plus, you get sponsorship. Isn't that great? It's everything you need to make a podcast, including the listeners supporting your show. Like I always say, if you have a dream of creating and becoming a podcaster host like myself and individual friends that is co-hosting with me, go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get a head start. Take advantage of the opportunity that's thrown in your face. If I could do it and reach success, so can you. I'm G Money Stacks. Thank you for listening. Let's go.
Five, four, three, two, one. Good evening, new listeners and current listeners from from all around the world, including including um the USA, the the five boroughs of Bronx, Manhattan, Staten Island, and Queens, including areas of Long Island, of course. And you are now tuning into the first episode of Meticulous Five Juice Podcast, episode one. Now, this this show is for Twitch TV, and the reason why I decided to put it on Twitch TV is because my current podcast that's on YouTube, which is Off the Meat Rat Chains, and your podcast is actually doing well. So I figured, why why not why not create another one? Since I've been inspired by a bunch of podcasters that I've been listening to lately on Spotify, so I figured let me just give it a try on Twitch. So, how did the name Meticulous Vibe Juice Podcast come about? Well, I'll put it to you like this. I wanted to come up with a name that nobody has ever heard before. The same way I did with the first one, which which was off the Meat Rat Change New York podcast. With this one, I wanted to concentrate on, I wanted to concentrate on the positive side of things the adjective the nouns so i figured why not why not meticulous vibe juice podcast so let me explain the meaning behind it meticulous means detail detail oriented especially when it comes to you know listen when it comes to listening to music sounds the bass while you're watching your movies the the TV shows that's your favorite, which I will actually explain what this what Meticulous Vibe Juice podcast is about. But first, um, vibe is based on energy that people give you, not just not just based on what you listen to, but like the people that you talk to on a on an every everyday basis, and sometimes. What sometimes on the sometimes on the phone too, and juice is more like a chillaxing <clears throat> type of thing while you sipping your drink while you're watching your TV and your um and your movies. It's more like a a chill time, you know what I mean, from a long day of work and stuff. So, so let me get to the um, let me get to the um. The, the synopsis of what the show is about. So this this one right here is basically a review show where we get to go go over um you know music artists' bodies of work like your your music albums. You have um your TV your favorite TV shows, your favorite movies and stuff. So that's basically what that's about. Um. And also, um, if you're new to Twitch and you don't know that I have Twitch, you can follow me on Twitch at Twitch TV, Twitch.tv, excuse me, Twitch.tv slash G Money Stacks, Queens, New York. That's Twitch.tv 
slash G Money Stacks Queens New York. All right. I will I will get to I will get to that at the end of the show. So just bear with me. So without further ado, um I want to go over um something actually. So today's show we're gonna be talking about J. Cole's recent new album, The Off Season, which I had a chance to get to listen to it before I even started um Meticulous Vibe Juice podcast episode one. So I figured I have something to talk about. So and speaking of J. Cole news, um of course you may know, may or may not know, he's been part of the Rolling Stone article. So this is um <clears throat> so this is basically about his autobiography over social commentary on the off season. So, so I'm going to read this to you guys. So you can just get an idea on what I'm going to talk about. So here we go. So the rapper's compositions are nibble, but his stories feel safe. Popular on Rolling Stone. For over a decade, J. Cole has rapped as the enlightened everyman navigating issues of race, class, and gender like a thoughtful jock. His latest release, The Off Season, finds him pondering inventive gun violence prevention measures one moment and lobbying sex locker room insults the next check your genitalia pussy niggas bleeding on yourself. He raps on 95 South. Still, the album is generally absent the overt social critiques that have built his reputation as a rapper of substance. Last summer, on Snow on the Bluff, his last lengthy engagement with ideas of Black liberation, he began by disputing that reputation. Niggas be thinking I'm deep, intelligent, fooled by my college degree. My IQ is average. There's a young lady out there. She way smarter than me, in quote. <laughs> From there, the song becomes a well-intentioned but widely insecure and paternalistic confrontation of the rapper's no-name, who I never even heard of before. And she... <laughs> what kind of name is no-name? <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, no-name likely <laughs> a response to tweets in which she met, she questioned her peers' participation in the moments anti-racist movement no name who has spent the last couple of years public publicly learning and sharing anti-capitalist anti-racist and anti-imperialist ideas responded with song 33 a one minute um a one minute um eve eve eviseration of his 
tone policing with reminders of the tragedies people across the country were rectifying. After, in a series of tweets, Cole reiterated his incapacity to act as a thought leader. A nigger like me just be rapping. He relented. His next songs came and went with much less fanfare. A two-track EP announced as the first singles from his upcoming album, The Fall Off. Instead came the off-season. The album was preceded by a short documentary on the rapper's mind state while making the music. The film isn't particularly relevatory, but indicates that Cole was prioritizing the technical proficiency of the off-season songs over the construction of an arc between them. Let me try to reach new heights from a skill level standpoint, he says in the doc. In turn, the album is as highly proficient and non-revealing as the documentary foreshadows. Over a tight 12 tracks of nimble songwriting, and outstanding composition. J. Cole continues to muse on the themes weaved throughout his discography, life and death, success and lack of thereof, the divine and the moral. He does this with, with personal and interpersonal anecdotes that are interesting but safe. As he leans into his passion for rap and sport and away from his predilection for social commentary. Okay. Okay, before I go on, um, like I previously said in the beginning of the, of the episode, um, I did get a chance to listen to the off-season album. Now, I have to, re- I have to really, really, really say I, I'm pretty impressed, man. And the fact that, and the fact that J. Cole came back with, with um, with a single. I wouldn't. I'm not gonna say. Um, I'm not gonna say because um, because everybody keeps saying that he fell off. He didn't really fall off. He, you know, every music artist take a break from creating music and stuff like that. You know, sometimes you know people need breaks. And I was actually talking to a podcaster who, who, who wanted to give up on herself, but at the same token of my soul, I had to reach out to basically tell her not to give up on herself. No matter what you're doing in life, especially if you're, you're creating podcast episodes, consistency is always key. It's not about pleasing everybody. Because at the end of the day, not everybody is meant to be pleased. And as for J. Cole's album, um, The Off Season, I would say that album is pretty fire, man. All his tracks is lit, though, man. And and also, I would like to actually add that it's basically 
you can't really call it a classic because it just came out last month. You can't really call it a classic yet because it just came out last month. I would say it's fire and it's a masterpiece. You get me? You know what I'm saying? Now, let's continue where I left off here. Um, music Musicality drives the offseason where Cole croons, hollers, and spits through a tangle of satisfying melodies and complex rhyme schemes. In standouts like Amari, My Life, and 100 Mil, there's drama and power as he alter, alternates between agile rapping and serious singing. He harmonizes with fellow Fayetteville, North Carolina native Moray on My Life. And enlist Dreamville veteran Bass, an impressive rhymer himself as a singer in two places where his performances are careful and calming. Dead center, 100 mil, feels like the, t- the thesis of Cole's efforts here. He dances through a handful of flows in just one verse, sounding like he's bounding through drills on the court. How come a nigga ain't enter his prime? Still getting better after all this time, he boasts. He's right. Cole has become a top-tier composer, Marion Arithmetic, a killer with lyrical dynamism. Dynamism. Okay. There are quick, vivid bursts of imagery scattered throughout the off-season moments in which he tells stories without labouring over them. On close, Cole bobs and weaves in and out of vignettes of his life and that of a friend who is ultimately slain, returning to the Tatilia word as like a home base. <laughs> he gives vice 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 exposition exposition excuse me on interlude where he raps about ENTs carrying a woman's child away from her like surrogate mothers in the unbearable southern summer heat together Cole's tail paint a picture of himself as a survivor who has traded in remorse for gratitude he refers to his fear of death in the past tense on let go my hand says i'm thankful because i made it past my 30s no one no one murdered me on pride is the devil and sets out to celebrate the life of a dead friend on the climb back making it out of Fayetteville used to torment Cole. Now it gives his life a sense of meaning. That's why when niggas throw a shot or two online, I pay no mind to their benign gestures he raps 
on applying pressure, which I did see the vi- I did see the video to um, applying pressure. And <laughs> a couple of weeks ago in the group chat, someone said that um, <laughs> someone said, "Give it up for um, light skin Jesus." <laughs> I was like, "Yo, this." Th- I'm like this. This dude is crazy for saying that right here. <laughs> oh man. Um. Um. But with the off season, Cole has made an album nearly devoid of spaces for the kind of rigorous critique that Snow on the Bluff warranted, because he doesn't offer thoughts that are new challenging or socio-politically charged the rapper who admittedly hasn't done a lot of reading instead talks talks about what he knows best his own life with undeniable acumen as a lyricist there's an uncomfortable finger wagging at broke people hating on millionaires on applying pressure but he does so in the the context of the jealousy he once harbored. The album's biggest revelation comes with Let Go My Hand, where J. Cole admits that he once had a physical altercation with Diddy, as was rumored. The idea of any tension between them is quickly rectified when Diddy shows up on the outro. After a year of social and political upheaval, it's notable that Cole re- retreated into himself, setting out to be the greatest rapper and a professional baller rather than a voice of reason. That's not a bad thing, per se. Maybe it leaves space for listeners to engage more deeply with performers who have stronger ideas about race, class, and society like a no-name. But when Cole raps that he can't let the fame scare me off from speaking candidly on punching the clock, it feels like it might have. Okay. Okay. Um, Um, let me say this. I actually discussed the whole downside to fame in my other show, Off the Meat Rat Change New York Podcast, episode 26, titled Downside to Fame. And the reason I chose to talk about that is because of the simple fact that, um, hold on. Hold on, folks. Sorry about that, folks. Anyway, um, I I was actually saying um, the reason why I decided to talk about the downside to fame is because, oh boy, hang on. Hold on one minute.
Okay. Sorry about that, folks. Um, had a little charger issue. But the reason why I decided to talk about the downside of fame is because of the simple fact that, you know, over the years, you know, you hear about, you know, well-known people um, that that can't really handle the peer pressure of fame because, you know, it causes, like, fame creates people having suicidal thoughts. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying everybody is doing that per se, but what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, it's very, 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 very hard to be, you know, out in the open, free, being able to, you know, you know, have a little time for yourself without without the paparazzi. And I get it. And you know, and you know, sometimes paparazzi, sometimes they tend to go a little too far on things. And and yes, I do. I do understand why sometimes you know people do get upset, and I get it. So let me just um let me just go to other um J Cole J Cole news that I was about to, to discuss. Here we go. Now. Now, um, I did want to talk about um, the 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 albums that was number that has number one written all over it. Now I'm on Billboard right now, so we're gonna um, get into this right now. So, and by the way, um, I, J Cole's the first rapper to be able to. Um, to get six number one albums, six, which I will, which I will get to in a second. So we're gonna go on Billboard and read this article right now. So, so, so here we go. J. Cole's the off-season barges at in in number one on the Billboard 200 albums chart with 2021's biggest week for a hip-hop release as the set launches with 282,000 equivalent album units earned in the U.S. in the week ending May 20th, according to MRC data. The off-season was released via Dreamville slash Rock Nation and Scope Records on May 14th and also scores the year's highest streaming week for any album, which I did get a chance to listen to. Like I said, I did listen to it. So um, the Billboard 200 chart ranks the most popular albums of the week in the U.S. based on multi-metric consumption as measured in equivalent, equivalent to be exact, Album units. Units comprise album sales, track equivalent albums, and streaming equivalent albums. Each unit 
equals one album sale or 10 individual tracks sold from an album or 3,750. Sorry about the cost. Sorry about that. Can't really control that. As long as you can hear me. Ad supported or 1,250 paid subscription on demand official audio and video streams generated by songs from an album. The new May 29, 2021 data chart where the off-season debuts at number one will be posted in full on Billboard's website on May 25th for all charts news. You follow Billboard and Billboard charts both on Twitter and Instagram. Okay. Of the off-season's 282,000 equipment album units earned in the tracking week ending May 20th, SEA units comprised 243,000 um, album sales, comprised 37,000, making it the top selling album of the week, and TEA units comprised 2,000. Yes. In terms of total units, earned. The off-season has the largest week of 2021 for a hip-hop album and the second largest overall to only the debut frame of Taylor Swift's Fearless with 291,000 units since April 24th data chart. The off-season starts with 243,000 SEA units totaling 325.5 million on demand streams of the album's 12 tracks that some marks the biggest stream streaming week for an album in 2021. All right. It surpasses the previous high water mark for the year when Morgan Wayland's dangerous the double album debuted with 240.8 million, million streams for its 30 songs in its first week, chart dated January 23rd. The off-season keeps up J. Cole's hot streak on the chart as all six of his studio albums have reached number one. Um, all right. The off-season follows the chart-topping KOD 2018, For Your Eyes Only 2016, 2014 Forest Hills Drive 2014, Born Center 2013, and Cold World The Sideline Story 2011. All but Born Center also debuted at number one. Born Bowed at number two. Damn. J. Cole's only chart entry to miss the top slot was a live album, 2016's Forest Hills Drive Live, which reached number 71. That's crazy. 
Nick Nicki Nick Nick Minaj beam me up Scotty mixtape debuts at number two on the Billboard 200 with 80,000 equivalent albums unit earned. Of that sum, SEA units comprise 63,000 equaling 85.57 million on demand streams of the album's tracks. Album sales comprise 11,000 and TEA units comprise 6,000. Beam Me Up Scotty is Minaj's fifth album to reach the top two on the Billboard 200. The entirety of her charting efforts, Beam Me Up Scotty was initially released for free in 2009 but was not commercially issued or distributed to stream streaming services until May 14, 2021. The new version of the album houses most of the tracks from the 20, not 20 excuse me, 2009 release and adds three new cuts, Seeing Green with Drake and Little Rain Fractions and Crocodile Teeth. <laughs> anyway, Anyway, um, man, let me just say this. Let me just say this, though. Now, even though, even though Born Center wasn't really number one in the Billboard charts, now, this is crazy. It's crazy how Born Center was not number one, and the rest of the albums um, that I just mentioned was already number one. So, so what you have here is KLD, For Your Eyes Only, Forest Hills Drive, Born Center, Cold World, The Sideline Story. But that's crazy, though, man. Like, I feel like, I feel like it should, it, it should have been number one in and on um, the Billboard charts, like that's that's really crazy to me, man. But um, shouts to J Cole, man. Like that for him to be able to have like, and I did hear um, if I'm not mistaken, I'm not gonna really get to whatever I don't get to on the J Cole thing. I'll try to touch on it on my other show. So. Without further ado, I would like to go over a throwback movie, which I know everybody probably heard of the the movie that Tupac was in, which is Juice. And that's my movie review of what we're going to be talking about. Now... Now, hold on a sec. All right. So, so, I have an article by the Los Angeles Times in regards to the movie review regarding Juice. So, 
Here it goes. The mean streets of America's urban ghettos are suddenly teeming with filmmakers. Boys in the Hood, New Jack City, hanging with the homeboys and straight out of Brooklyn have all told basic, basically the same story of trapped teenagers' dream world by an unforgiving environment. Juice Citywide is the latest entry in the particular sweet stage, and though it is a vivid, promising piece of work from first-time director Ernest R. Dickerson, it also shows how difficult it's becoming to deal with this material in any kind of fresh manner. Dickerson, who has been director of photography for all of Spike Lee's features, does capture one aspect of the inner city particular, particularly well, and that is the crucial role played by rap and hip-hop music Raheem, Bishop, Q, and Steele, the four best friends who hang together and make up a Harlem crew do not merely listen to music, they inhale it, taking from its insistent beat a rhythm and an attitude they live their lives by. And Dickerson, who co-wrote the screenplay, and Gerald Brown understands that dynamic absolutely. In fact, it is the dream of Q, which is Omar Epps' character, Juice's protagonist to break out and become a successful disc jockey. And the film opens with his mother yelling at him for the oversleeping that inevitably results from his staying up late practicing his DJ routine. Almost simultaneously, we meet the rest of the group as they start their days. The smooth-talking Raheem, Khalil Kane, the chubby, good-humored Steele, Jermaine Hopkins, and the edgy Bishop Tupac Shakur, whose father sits motionless, catonic in front of a TV set. The parents of these kids think they are off to school, but school is less than an afterthought in their lives and their connection with their hardworking, worrying elders is barely that. More even than most teenagers, they live in their own insular, self-contained world, using their own language and signs, and by turns aim aimlessly roaming the city streets or hanging out at the local pool hall slash video arcade. Though only one of the four actors, Hopkins, who debuted in Stand By Me, has any kind of feature experience, this quartet couldn't fit into their roles anymore adroitly if they were lifelong members of the Screen Actors Guild. And Dickinson clearly feels an enormous warmth for, for the guys, so much so that we tend to look with leniency on their initial indiscretions for instance, the shoplifting of records to help Q prepare for his possible big break in the Mixed Master Massacre 
DJ contest. But given the kind of neighborhood this crew hangs out in, it's no surprise that shoplifting will not be the culmination of their life of crime. Egged on by Bishop, who wears a gold submachine gun around his neck and seems to consider Jimmy Cagney psychotic monster in white heat, his role, the boys set their sights on riskier game. While no no one is going to question the probability that kids like these, even kids who do not use drugs to any noticeable extent, would turn to serious crime. Their action is an unfortunate one as far as the film is concerned. For one thing, it comes surprisingly soon after a very strong scene where they explicitly decide against violence. And Juice provides no explanation at all for the sudden and rather startling about face. More seriously, once criminal activity turns up in the film, rated R for strong language and some violence, the narrative becomes less interesting and fairly foreseeable. Without either the direct directorial possess that Mario Van P was brought to New Jack City or the ability to evoke deeper emotions that enrich boys in the hood. Juice tends to simply evaporate, getting less and less interesting as its plot trust and fails to live up to the much more intriguing cultural ambience Dickerson and Brown have created. Though the trailers in the early version of the print as for Juice have created something of a tempest in a teapot as far as how exploitative the film's intentions are. Dickerson, though not averse to a little exploitation, and why should he be? Clearly has some very serious things on his mind and the directing and acting talent at his disposal to make something happen. Given all that, it seems a shame that Juice's script ends up so unexciting and predictable. Both the film's characters and real-life situations, they are based on deserve better. Now that filmmakers have begun to show the ghetto in living color with some regularity, they will have to come to grips with the fact that just showing it isn't going to cut it anymore. Juice. Omar Epps, Q, Tupac Secure, Bishop, um, Jermaine Hopkins, Steele, Khalil Kane, Raheem, Cindy Heron, Yolanda. Okay, um, so let me say let me say this though. I did remember watching Juice with my cousin of mine when I was in Florida, and even though um it it hasn't really lived 
even though you know critics in the um, Los Angeles Times um, don't really don't really don't really know um, what they want in a film as far as their high expectations. Because when you have high expectations for a film to think that it's going to be like the other movies, that, that's not going to happen. Because you got to really think about this. Juice is like everybody's favorite throwback movie. And, and I'm not just saying this out of cap. I'm saying this because, because you know, because of the fact that Tupac was in some movies. And I will try to review um, Poetic Justice, which is another throwback, which I will talk about in a future episode. But for but when I saw Juice, it I came to grips that look, it's not going to be perfect. But let me just let me just say this though, it is one of my favorite movies that that me and my cousin from Florida that 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 I watched with. And it was pretty. It was pretty tense, though, man. I like the action. <laughs> I like the action. Of course, the violence. Like you don't want a boring movie. You don't want a boring movie to cater to, you know, politics and stuff. Because that's just that's just not how it works. Now, what I would say about Juice the movie. I would also like to say that it's a classic and it's and it's fire and also I'm not going to well like do you find do you find juice to be a masterpiece I'll leave that to to everybody that's watching on Twitch right now and other social media handles. I will post a question on the podcast page to to get everybody's reaction to see if you think that Juice is considered a masterpiece of a movie. So that will be a question I will put up in a couple in a couple minutes. So um other than other than that, we got some. We got another movie to actually go over too. Now, I heard about the I heard about the musical Jersey Boys, but I never knew that there was a movie about that. So, so let's go to the Jersey Boys, shall we? And this is an article from Vanity Vanity Fair from you know. All right. <clears throat> Though he sometimes composes his own scores, has a well-documented interest in jazz, and even sings on occasion, there's nothing terribly musical about Clint Eastwood these days. His flat growl and squinty eyes don't suggest much melody, and his recent films are stately and somber. Film in Milan... Malaco, whatever, in palettes covering topics like war and power and corruption. So 
he's kind of a strange choice to direct the movie adaptation of Jersey Boys, the smash hit Broadway musical that tells the origin story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons, the New Jersey, New Jersey hit makers who ruled pop music in the 1960s. Frankie Valley and his bandmates' music is peppy and upbeat and cute, all things that Eastwood films rarely are. <clears throat> and yet, for the first hour or so, Eastwood managed to give Jersey Boys some real zip, mainly drafting off of the energy created by the snappy Vincent Piazza, who plays Tommy DeVito, the group's near-do-well ringleader. The film moves along at an amenable clip, skipping around a soundstage. Um, New Jersey and doling out lots of ring-a-ding banter. Piazza serves as our narrator for this stretch of the film. <clears throat> and he's an, an inviting presence, rackish and swarmy, but in a dearly old-fashioned and ultimately innocent way. <clears throat> this is a good-natured film, one in which money may be owed to mobsters, but those mobsters are never really going to do anything scary to it. But unfortunately, Valley played by John Lloyd Young, who won a Tony for originating the role on Broadway, is a far less interesting character than his buddy Tommy. And when he, excuse me, when the focus shifts to him, the film loses much of its momentum. One problem might be that for a too long portion of the film, the 38-year-old young is tasked with playing a teenager, as are the other 30-something actors. It's confusing, and it prevents the movie from grounding itself in any real-time period. That's also a problem of Eastwood's pacing, which is choppy will plop into various eras of the guys' live lives and given very few points of reference to orient ourselves. It's hard to tell if their early success arrived for after a week or after two years. Biographical films often suffer from a sense of big moment telegraphing filmmakers dirtfully plottingly showing us the required milestone moments in their subjects' lives. So it's rare that I find myself actually craving that simplistic pro programmatic structure. Jersey Boys had me wishing for title cards explaining when we were and where we were and why we were there for that particular moment. It's an oddly factless piece of historical reenactment and feels a bit mushy and insubstantial because of it. 
But that's not the movie's main problem, nor are the increasingly bad and varied wigs. Most voiced cruelly upon Young, who is already a bit out of depth at his depth, and so come across almost like a cartoonish sketch when he's stuck under a series of dreadful hair pieces. No, the real problem is that Eastwood has made a movie based on a musical and taken out most of the music. I guess when faced with his in it music lessness, Eastwood decided to just not do much music. Sure, we see Frankie and the guys recording and performing throughout the movie, but I only remember hearing maybe one or two songs sung completely from start to finish. The bulk of Jersey Boys is talking, which is probably not what most people want out of this movie. Other than Eastwood's lack of inner song, I think another reason the movie doesn't integrate its music well is that these are not numbers that are woven in through the narrative. Like in a more traditional musical, when Roxy and Velma bust out with a tune in Chicago or Tracy Turnblast starts wobbling about Baltimore, it's all about it's all part of the musical experience. The songs are specifically to the story and are thus integral to it. But in the case of the Jersey Boys, the songs are known in t- entities with their own associations outside the t- context of Valley's life. So when the guys do perform and they perform well, it lacks a certain crucial amount of dramatic urgency, let's say. All right. Seeing some Four Seasons impersonators live on stage is one thing, but sitting in a movie theater and listening to pre-recorded tunes, ones we all know well in their original form, sung by some people who didn't originally sing them, It's just not all that exciting. The music sounds great and can still get a toe tapping, but the film nonetheless struggles to generate any real heat. Maybe jukebox musicals aren't really a good fit for the movies. Just look at Rock of Ages, or if you dare, ask Julie Taymor about the Beatles. Jersey Boys isn't a total wash, but it's hard to figure out who the movie is for and why it was made the way it was. Fans of Valley's music or of the musical will be disappointed. People looking for some real music history will likely leave feeling unilluminated. And the rare few Eastwood devotees who come to see their master at work will probably find this effort strange and off-key. The movie has some moments of genuine sparkle. Christopher Walken is a hoot as a local mob boss, while Mike Doyle blasts through the movie's vague hints of creaky homophobia by playing flamboyant producer Bob Crew, 
with a bit of dignity and grace, but they are not enough to sustain us through the long slots of music-free dialogue and narrative wandering. The closing credits featured the only real traditional music number, musical number. And it's a fun, if slightly strange one, but by the, that point, it's too little, way too late. <clears throat> you think? Often tedious and at times clumsily constructed, Jersey Boys is the opposite of the Four Seasons music. They blended styles and tones with a confident smoothness. While Eastwood's movie is mostly an odd jumble of the sonnet notes. Okay. All right. Um, even though um, I did see the trailer for the Jersey Boys movie, but I didn't get it. I didn't really have the, the chance to actually check it out. Now, what I say, well, let's say, I would say it's a classic, but it didn't live up to, it didn't live up to moviegoers. So it kind of like made, made it seem like that, you know, people were disappointed. I get it. And you know what? I'm not going to stay on the Jersey Boys for too long because I have a favorite TV show that I want to actually, you know, talk about. I remember a TV show that used to be on ABC and it's called Hanging with Mr. Cooper. And for those of you who may may not remember Mr. Cooper, Hanging with Mr. Cooper, um... This is um, this is basically what what this is. So <clears throat> so all right. What parents need to know. Parents need to know that 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 this night that this '90s show started out as an adult-oriented comedy, but was toned down to be more family-friendly after its first season. <clears throat> there. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. All right. There's some mild sexual innuendo, as well as frequent references to things like fistfights and drive-bys that are intended to be more funny than violent and will most likely go over the head of young viewers. Overall, the show highlights the importance of family and friendship. Um... So, what's the story of Hanging with Mr. Cooper, you ask? Hanging with Mr. Cooper, which originally aired in the 1990s, stars stand-up comedian Mark Curry as Mark Cooper, a retired NBA player who returns to his hometown of Oakland to take a job as a substitute teacher and part-time gym coach. He decides to move in with his childhood friend Robin Dumars, Don Lewis, and her roommate Vanessa Russell, Holly Robinson Pete. As the single and self-perceived ladies man just adjust to be exact to life with female roommates, he finds himself experiencing a lot of dating misadventures. 
um, <clears throat> things get even more complicated. When Robin moves out and cousin Geneva Sandra Quarterman moves in with her young daughter Nicole, Raymond Simone. But no matter how crazy his life gets, Martin never forgets where he came from or what's really important in life. So, so the show, which was originally positioned as an adult-oriented comedy similar to 70s classic Three's Company, but became more family-targeted in later seasons showcases. Curry's brand of humor and features lots of slapstick comedy, but beneath the silliness, especially in later seasons, is a strong message about the importance of friendship and the value of being supported by an extended family. It also highlights the importance of returning to your community and mentoring kids. It's all pretty mild, but there's some subtle sexual innuendo usually related to dating and romantic tensions between some of the main characters. Some of the jokes also include humorous references to violent behavior, including fights by drop-eyes. But much of this will most likely go over the head of younger viewers. And it's generally overshadowed by the show's overall positive message, making Hanging with Mr. Cooper a decent viewing choice for all the tweens and teens. Okay, families can talk about sitcoms. Are there any significant differences between the TV comedies that are popular today and those that were popular a decade ago? Is the humor itself different? Why are some shows still funny and popular 10, 20, or 30 years after they were originally aired? Why aren't others? Which of today's shows do you think will stand out the test of time? Oh boy. Okay. Um all right. Now I will say this though, um, before we even wrap up here. Hang with Mr. Cooper has been one of my favorite TGIF TV shows. And and of course, it did have some humor. It did have some element moments of, you know, you know, family, friendship, you know, difficult challenges. I mean, you just name it, though. Now, it is one of my favorite. I, it is one of my favorite um, TV shows, which I would consider a classic. It's lit, and I actually would have to say. It is a masterpiece. And speaking of masterpiece, this is going to wrap up today's episode of Meticulous Vibe Juice Podcast. Now, now, um, if you like what you heard, listen, um, my laptop's out of commission right now. 
So by the time I get me a new laptop, I should be able to upload the the first episode to to Anchor. So I have to wait one more day to actually receive it. So so um, without further ado, let me just say this though. I do apologize for you know the the little mishap with the with my uh, phone charger and stuff, but I will say this though. I can't blame us. I can't really blame myself for everything that's been going on, especially me, you know, butchering on some words and stuff like that. But I'm human. I'm human. And even if I even if I try switching things around, it's it's gonna make me lose a side of, you know, who I am as a person. I'm not here to be perfect. Being perfect is for the birds. But anyway, I digress on that shit though. So, so overall, we discussed about J. Cole. We discussed about um two movies that are considered classics. That are considered that are considered classics, and of course, a TV show. That's my favorite. So, um. I would like to say you can find me on Instagram, which is GMoneyStacks555 in Queens, New York, alongside with um, the podcast page on Instagram as well, which is Meticulous Vibe Juice Podcast on Instagram, alongside with my other show page, which is Off the Meat Rat Chains New York Podcast on Instagram as well. And also you can you can also find me on Twitch, which is twitch.tv slash gmoneystacksqueens New York. Now I know for a fact that I did start with a little confidence, but a little mishap kind of happened and everything, but I was able to catch myself up. So so I'm glad that every single person on the Twitch Universe has stuck around with me. So be sure to subscribe to my Twitch channel, G Money, G Money Stacks Queens, New York. That's G Money Stacks Queens, New York. Alright. Now I now I'm gonna call this a day. And I'll see and I'll see you next time in the next episode. Peace and one love.